You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo editor John Mulvey and Norman Blake. Hello, gang. Hi there. Hi, Andrew. Singer, songwriter, co-founding member of Teenage Fan Club, Norman has been writing bittersweet power pop and tender love songs and crafting sweetly mournful melodies on mortality for the past 35 years, collaborating on such beloved landmark LPs as Bandwagon-esque, Grand Prix, Songs from Northern Britain, Man Made, Howdy Here, and their forthcoming release, their 11th full studio album, the autumnal, introspective and pastoral Nothing Lasts Forever. Before we start, here is one of Norman's from the new album. This is the pensive yet uplifting Back to the Light, written by Norman Blake and released on the band's own label, Paymar, on September the 22nd. The lights come on, we clear the stage and break it down, we turn the Welcome to the show. It's been an absolute joy listening to this album, even if, or perhaps because, it's a record suffused with kind of what seemed to me contradictory emotions, a sort of a pensive optimism, a reflective positivity. It's forward-looking, but it's tinged with thoughts of mortality and loss. Is that is that a fair summation? Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know... Um, you know, we we try to, as writers, um, write about our, our experience of uh, the world, um, our lives. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, personally speaking, the last few years, you know, I've been through a, 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 a marriage breakup. Uh, and uh, that, you know, in terms of the last album that we made, that was, uh, that was mainly what I was writing about. found that cathartic. Uh, and then on this record, uh, you know, um, I, 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 there is some optimism. I've just moved into a new home. I'm sort of moving forward in my life. Um, and yet at the same time, I guess we're getting older and we're very conscious of that. And uh, that that's reflected in the, the sort of lyrical content. Um, and um, But, you know, we, do, we tend to not write the lyrics until we, we're in the studio. And so what will happen is myself and Raymond will be writing lyrics at the same time. So... We, there, a lot of the imagery is quite similar. Yeah. I think that's because we're kind of bouncing off each other and, and it kind of helps sort of homogenise things a bit, you know, in terms of the, the, the lyrical content. I think um, it's interesting that a bunch of musicians, maybe around your age, uh, are doing something similar in what I would perhaps term as a kind of a radical honesty about where they are in their lives and and a kind of a midlife condition, if you like. And it feels quite different from some previous generations of musicians who felt obligated one way or another to maintain a pretense of, of rock and roll eternal youth, I guess, or, or at least that sort of perpetuated attitude, 
which is really not very much at all yeah. like the kind of lived experience of most people of our age right now. Yeah, I think uh, people are generally much more accepting of all older artists, you know. We've sort of grown older with the whole generation, you know, the, the 60s generation, and there are lots of them are still making music, and, you know... Uh, you know, if you sort of, I, went, I went to see Elton John recently. It was a great show. Of course, it was for his last last shows uh, in the UK. But you know, he's you know. Uh, but there are lots of artists that uh, I think of Bob Dylan too. He's kind of perpetually on tour. You know, and McCartney constantly making new music. It's it's what they do. But uh, I think generally people are more accepting of older artists. Um, and yeah, I think if you look back at the sort of videos the older artists were making in like the 90s or whatever the yeah they would try to sort of compete if you will with sort of you know they would sort of glitzy videos and you know uh the, the content of the lyrics would be about being young it wouldn't be about you know uh a reflection of the the reality of their lives I think that's why um, when Dylan put out Time Out of Mind, it felt like such a revelation. But it also felt like, oh my God, he's about to die. He's so preoccupied with mortality. And of course he was in his mid-50s. You know? <laughs> I know. Like... And it's amazing that, yeah, was still, I think we were talking earlier today about the yeah, the Stones. Under, I remember when Undercover the Night came out and I thought they'd... I, quite, I liked the record, but... Um, I kind of thought, well, those guys are really old. They're still doing it, but they're ancient. And, you know, and they're probably late 30s, I would imagine, <laughs> at that point. Something like that. I think yeah. one of the things that I like is that shift that um, John was talking about has come with a kind of almost like a kind of an embracing of kind of more, you know, sort of poetic and impressionistic lyrics. Certainly with you, yourself and the, and the fannies, a kind of like a, a sense of kind of that with that awareness of kind of mortality comes a kind of a different way of writing, a different way of kind of looking at the role of the quote-unquote pop lyric. Yeah, yeah, you know, songwriting is a craft, right? you know, and, and, I, and I suppose as the, the longer you do it, you, you want to sort of develop it, and that's an area that I always felt I, I wasn't so good at, with, with, you know, with, with the lyrics. Um, in the past, I mean, I, I always think when you start a band, you're really the, the, the sum of your influences. You know, no, not, there aren't many artists that arrive fully formed. And so when you start the band, you kind of... Well, said this is my experience anyway. I, you know, there were sort of things, certain things that are referenced musically, but I really didn't know what to write about lyrically. I, you know, I didn't really feel as though I had a lot to say. And so I wrote narrative songs, you know, the, the concept or whatever. It's not really about anyone. Just a, just a look for some interesting imagery. And then as I, I went on as a songwriter, I sort of felt that, uh, well, you have an opportunity. Well, actually, it's it's, a, it's kind of therapy as well. You know, it's a good way to, if you've got sort of things going on in your head or, uh, or uh, things that you're worried about or whatever, or, you know, it's a good way to sort of go through them, you know, to sort of try and put it down on paper. And and, and, uh, and so, so I think I've sort of continued to try and do that. And, yeah, you do start to think about the you know the the words and and I, I think more poetically I think you know I I like to, I like the idea that you can sort of read but well, you know songs songs are different because you know you, there are a lot of great lyrics that if you read them they're kind of nonsensical um, and actually some of them, some of them are on this wing record um, but um, but but you know it's it's nice if you can look at the lyric and read it and it sort of scans and makes sense and, and can be read as sort of poetry or whatever. The record you just sort of um, briefly alluded to it there, the record you've brought into talks about today is kind of, I mean, it's another album that has a kind of 
curious melancholy at its heart. And it's also interesting, given what we were just talking about, it, it's a record that in many ways is caught between that world of rock and roll excess and, 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 and denial of age. And yet at the same time, it's very aware of kind of, you know, loss and, and mortality and crack up and everything. It's, it's mm-hmm. Quebec, the penultimate studio album by the warped, Pennsylvania art pop Lennon and McCartney Dean and Gene Ween aka Michael Melchiondo Jr. and Aaron Freeman now before we talk about the record here is a montage of the opening two tracks the it's fair to say completely unrepresentative Motorhead parody which uh, it's going to be a long night and the gorgeous and I think I'm allowed to say here teenage fan club-esque among his tribe both written and arranged by Ween and released on Sanctuary Records. Norman, listening to Among His Tribe again, it, it's also kind of, it, it could even be an outtake from David Crosby's If I Could Only Remember My Name. It's got that kind yeah. of, you know, sort yeah. of, sort of etiolated kind of West Coast kind of burnout romanticism to it. It's, I mean, just before we go into it, I just want to first say, what a joy it has been to revisit this album. Um, so thank you very much for bringing it onto the show. But can I ask, when, sure, yeah. when would you have first heard this record? Well, around the time it came out, I'd been, I'd been interested in Ween for a bit, quite a bit of time before that. So Dave Barker, who put out the first Teenage Fan Club record, put, uh, released Push the Little Daisies uh, over here on, a, on a, what was the, I can't remember what label, it could have been Paperhouse, mm. it could have been the label that we were, we were on with Dave. But that was the first time that I was aware of them, and I was I was uh, sort of listening to a lot, listening to a lot of the shimmy disc stuff at the time. I thought a lot of the stuff that was c- coming out of, you know, Kramer's studio was was great, and really interesting, and we'd sort of become friendly with Don Fleming and the Ball guys, um, and uh, and so yeah, I, I, so I'd I'd liked them for quite a long time before this. I'd, I'd bought a lot of the records, but. This to me, um, was interesting, you know, because it's interesting that you discover later on that you know that, well, you know, uh, Gene or Aaron uh, had was having some, you know, um, issues with with the uh, substance abuse issues at the time, and so maybe that's where a lot of the melancholy mm. comes from, and the you know the angst or whatever. Um, but but it, 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 well, I love about Winnie is that they, they 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 just take on so many different forms of music. It's so eclectic. It's funny you you, you mentioned that they're like the you know the, uh, Lennon you know they're like Lennon McCartney. And I kind of think that this record's a bit like the White yeah. Album. 
you know, um, I mean, there's even like a, a demo version of this album. Like, like you know, you got the Isher demo uh, demos that the, the Beatles made, but there's a great um, demo version for this. Se- and actually, Caesar, isn't it? The Caesar demo. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, they're actually you can get them. They're on YouTube. There's a, the really good flat version of all of those on YouTube. But it's funny you, you're talking about the opening track. It's going to be a long night. Sounding like Motorhead. The demo sounds even more like Motorhead. <laughs> it's, it, it could be Lemmy singing. Um, but yeah, I just I just find them really interesting. I think their kind of fear fearlessness is great. Yeah, you, you have to be confident to make a record like this, and uh, and you, you know, but yeah, it's so eclectic. I really like that. I, I like the idea that you don't know what's coming next. You there's know? a sense in which their eclecticism can be a thing. I think that puts people off. There's certainly there's a there's a kind of playful. I mean, playfulness is too light a word for them. There's a kind of dark sort of effed up kind of quality yeah, to their sure. sound and kind of and yet certainly with I think with this album the album that came before it White Pepper which obviously you mentioned the White Album it was called that because it was a reference to the White Album and Sgt. Pepper you know but there yeah. is there's this kind of there's a kind of classic songwriter kind of melodicism and genius going on yeah, behind the weirdness I, I th- and yeah, they're, listening they're, yeah. to it recently, I definitely kind of kept noticing lots of similarities in terms of its kind of the harmonies and melodicism with Teenage Fan Club. Yeah, I think you're. I think that's part, partly what drew drew me to it as well. Um, because the songwriting's really, really great. And so it's like, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that suggesting that Teenage <laughs> Fan Club songwriting is really, really great. That's for other people to judge. But, but you know, they they they're really accomplished musicians and songwriters. You know, the harmonies are fabulous. Uh, they can, you know, a song like Tried and True. They they could, you know, I can try to think what comes before that. So many people in the neighborhood, which is really kind of quite strange track. Uh, there, you know, uh, I, I, I goes from that into this really incredible pop song. But then, what they do is they subvert things by detuning the vocal. Yeah. So they they did that in quite a lot of tracks. Actually, it's a real thing that they, they of theirs, uh, and it just makes it sound really odd. Uh, I think in tried and true, the vocals detuned, so pitch shifted, like you know. A few semitones, but it, you know, so pitch shifted. It stays in the same key, but the voice just starts to sound really strange. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it's really idiosyncratic. But, but yeah, I, I think the songs are, are incredible. Uh, and another one that I think should could could be a, a big hit if some, the right person recorded it uh, would be a, "I Don't Want It." Yeah, that that's an incredible song. Really, really fabulous song. Um, you mentioned um, tried and true. I mean, kind of that's a you know that's a kind of a, on the one hand it's this this song kind of imbued with almost a kind of Buddhist philosophy, and yet at the same time it's got a smell my hole joke in there. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's that's. I mean, that, yeah, that all, it always makes me chuckle when that line comes along, yeah. and I'm always anticipating that line coming. It's what is the line? It's like, um, can you dig in my soul? Could you smell my hole? And then pause, and then life. Yeah. So, so that's the the yeah. Um, but but in a way that kind yeah. of seems to sum them up. You've got this kind it of does th- you know absolutely gorgeous kind of deeply philosophical transportive track, and right at the heart of it, some kind of scatological joke. Yeah, that's I I, read, I was reading a, a bit about the record uh, today. 
uh, and I think there's um, is it uh, Dean? I think says, "Oh yeah, we were we, we wanted to make an obnoxious record, you know. We wanted to be obnoxious." Uh, and, I, I, you know, I think that's the thing. I think people, you know, for a lot of people, they would listen to this record and say, what are this band? Mm. You know, what, what you know, because like, like you say, there are sort of moments of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young in there. There's, you know, uh, uh, there's, I was th- there's a song Captain on it. I was listening to that team thinking, this is a like a bit like Angelo Badalamenti. Yeah. You sort of post-rock Angelo Badalamenti or something like that, you know. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Uh, I, I, you know, like I, said, I love that eclecticism, and uh, but I, I guess for a lot of people, they would want it to be more cohesive in a way or something like that. Well, I think it's not. It's when when you combine that eclecticism with the sort of the bum jokes, then <laughs> then it looks like, or it can look, if you're outside the tent, like a kind of prankster pastiche. The the it's very easy, I think, to overlook the the the, the sort of the craft. And the integrity, yeah. the emotional integrity of the music, because they're they're doing so much hyperactively to distract you from that some of the time. Yeah, do you, do you know the other things that it reminds me of in a way. There's a kind of tradition of this, and 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 that part of uh, you know uh, American music post the sixties, like you know, say the Fugs right. or the Holy Model Rounders. I can see you know elements of that in in, in Ween, you know. And people um, like the frogs later as well. And yeah, like that. yeah, yeah, and that was you know I guess a lot of the shimmy discs yeah. were a bit like that. The Bong Water records are you know kind of you know a bit like this King Missile. Uh, those records are you know even more eccentric than yeah. this. And um, then a lot of amphetamine reptile Jesus lizard uh, is yeah. kind of like hardcore takes on this sort of thing as well. It's that it's that sort of brutal cynical irreverence. Which is which is yeah. masking sort of true feelings, I guess. Really, yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's another aspect to Quebec as well. I mean, Gene Ween is a a big Rod McEwen fan, and there's, there's an interview online where he's talking about how Rod McEwen songs have this kind of almost kind of light, almost sort of sickly facade, but behind that, they're dealing with kind of you know heartbreak and and loneliness. And you know, this is very much a breakup album. You know, you you mentioned the kind of the fact that. Gene was going through a lot of kind of, you know, substance abuse, but he was also dealing with a divorce as well, you know, and kind of, the, you know, and, and I think also they're both aware of the fact that the the band is coming apart at the seams and kind of, is that, I mean, obviously kind of you, you were talking about the, the, the previous Fanny's album, Endless Arcade, which is also was you coming to terms with a divorce and also I think coming to terms with the fact that the band were changing shape and someone was going to leave and kind of, and it's a classic journalist trick to then sort of look for, you know, and the direct parallels there. But is it something that you were aware of within that record? Within the... Within the, the, within the Ween album, album, yeah. Within the Ween record. Um, I, you know, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I, 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 I thought that way at the time. I just found it really interesting. I didn't didn't think that deeply mm. about it because, like I said, I was unaware of the what was going on in the background yeah. uh, in, in terms of, for them as a band and personally... Um, so, um, so I, I really wasn't. I can't say that I was conscious of that at all. Um, no, um, but you know, I, I just I like to say I, I really was sort of musically and I, I, you know, I, I was the just the, the the I don't know 
Well, it was, it's very melodic. There are great songs on it, but it's, it's, it's odd, yeah. you know. Um, that, that's what attracted me, really, I guess. It's oddness, of the, for want of a better word. And as a, as a songwriter, are you kind of, do you, I mean, I wonder kind of how you, do you kind of listen and think, oh, what are they doing there? How did they do that? What are they doing with the guitars and the, the harmonies? And do you kind of... Yeah, they're a fascinating the, group musically. So, do you do? You, is there that need to sort of pick it apart and figure out what they're doing? Yeah, there kind of is actually. I was just, you know, I, I realised recently um, when I was listening to this record that on the new Teenage Fan Club record, there's a a, a song called "I Left the Light On," and I, I there's a lyric um, in that um, a, 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 a crashing and burning. And I think I must have lifted that from uh, from this. Re- I don't want it because uh, what's the line in this record? Uh, but please hold on to the memories before we really crash and burn. And I was compl- I was unconscious of, of you know I wasn't aware that I'd done that, but I've, I've, that's been subconsciously lifted <laughs> from there for sure. So yeah, you do you know it's uh, I, you do listen to artists that you you like and you can try and work out what they're doing. I I, I really like working with different people. I've worked with Jad Fair and Joe Pernice and a lot of different people. An Eros Childs, and everyone has a slightly different. But maybe you know you can be uh, similar ways of approaching making music. But there's always something stylistically that someone will do. Everyone's got little tricks, you know. Something Joe Pernice would start with a lyric. Eros will I don't know. Just he, he's a melody guy, you know. Jad is a lyric guy. Jad will repeat things over and over again. Uh, but you know, um, and but he's happy to sort of maybe use the same lyric in a number of different songs, you know. Uh, and so, uh, so when you work with someone who does that, you think, well, actually, you know, I can do that. You can. There aren't, aren't any rules here. It's sometimes easy to forget that there aren't any rules when it comes to making music. You just do what feels right, you know. But you can, you, you definitely you pick things up from working with other people. And so, yeah, when you listen to records and, and you know, in terms of structure. Uh, you can learn quite a lot. You can also maybe learn quite a lot from their instrumental virtuosity as well. It's it's kind of... I always, I must admit, in the 90s, I always thought of them, because probably of that shimmy disc background, that they were quite an indie proposition and that kind of thing. But actually, as the years have gone on, one of the things that I've noticed a lot about talking about Ween online is that you sometimes often find that a lot of really hardcore Ween fans, and there are a lot of them out there, especially in the States, there's this surprising crossover with Grateful Dead fans as well. Yeah, I can I can totally see that because it's it's musically quite sophisticated, actually. They're, they're really good players, uh, you know... Um, uh, uh, yeah, it's you know there's a, 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 a yeah a, yeah a lot of great playing on this record. Yeah. Uh, the, like I say, the arrangements are good, but the yeah, um, the, Dean is a fabulous guitar player. The solos are really great um, and well arranged. Everything's well arranged. And there's this uh, there's this strange afterlife that the band have enjoyed, where they've ostensibly stopped making new music, but are quite a powerful touring proposition. Yeah, yeah, which is amazing, actually. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I was looking at some live clips earlier, and yeah, I haven't seen them in a long, long time. But that would be good, good to check them out. No, I don't. I don't think they're still touring anymore because there was they, a sort of acrimonious. They stopped, have they? Okay. Yeah, there's a, a, oh, quite, quite an acrimonious split, and I think it was around the um, release of the Caesar demos. I think kind of when. Um, I think it was yeah when Gene sort of released the Caesar demos and sort of did it without Dean's. Um, oh, right. 
um, oh. sort of yeah. So they've kind of, and I also I think there was um, just the kind of, I mean, obviously, kind of um, Aaron's, sort of, you know, got himself sort of clean and got himself together, but I think kind of now um, I'm just trying to remember. Yeah, so they've no, they're not. They're kind of they're they're, they're very much not together anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm obviously but, um, getting things mixed up that happened ten years ago. Or something ridiculous. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Have you ever have you ever met them, Norman? Have you ever kind of had a chance? No, I've I've not met them. No, no, I, I no. Um, so yeah, I'm sure be yeah, I'm sure yeah, be really good to talk about this record with them. And, and you mentioned you, you mentioned know. the Caesar demos. The, the remarkable thing about that is just how much great unreleased stuff is on there. Just kind of how much amazing music they were making around the sort of early 2000s yeah and it's actually listening to those demos too it's interesting to see you you know uh, what what would they left off of the record you know obviously you've got to you know they're thinking about the structure and you you can sort of see in a way the tracks that aren't on because i think that there are some really great tracks there but you can see how they maybe wouldn't fit in even though in many ways this album feels like it's kind of all over the place um you know you've got that the track the fuck jam Which is, you know, uh, you kind of think, where does that fit in with the record? But somehow it all works together. And maybe that's partly because I've listened to it a lot of times. I don't know. And I'm kind of used to it and I know the shape of it or whatever. There is- but actually, yeah, when you listen to those demos, uh, and like you said, there are some great songs that aren't on, that didn't make the cut sort of thing. But I can sort of see why. There's definitely a more friendly or more radio-friendly version of Quebec that you could put together from those demos and and the other versions there's there's a kind of there's a need to you know to 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 use their words to you know to to put in those fuck jams to to fuck up the sequencing but it's kind of it seems to make sense because so much of it is about kind of um you know kind of a sense of kind of worldview shifted because of drugs i mean drug you know drug references and 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 drug you know kind of actual kind of specific drug names are kind of referenced throughout throughout it there's all an, the way all the way through all the, the way through sure, all the yeah. way through yeah. and so there's that there's that sense in which kind of nothing can be too easy a ride on the record even though there's so much beauty within it it needs there yeah. needs to be something that unsettles and disturbs in that record. Yeah, I mean, even if you think of the opening track, you know, it's going to be a long day. Well, you know, if, if you can imagine someone sticking to something, no, not for me, and they don't get to hear yeah. the rest of the LP. You know, um, and that and that, so is, that that is also you know that's an album about you know racking out lines of speed, isn't it? And kind of and just you know take your coat off, yeah. get the razor blades out, and you know we're going to go for it. And then, yeah, but it's, it's even. I think it's even a bit darker than that too, because I think it's it's sort of like um, but then it's almost as though the person who's been invited is sort of been held captive. Yeah, you know, because I think it's on. You're going to suffer. You're going to bleed. I've heard it all before. You will concede. Oh you know, and uh, I, uh, you know, I'm taking everything. You're going down. Lock up the doors. It's going to be a long yeah. day. So uh, you know, that, that's pretty dark stuff. Um, but yeah, but like I said, that you know, the, the song I don't want. It, I mean, that could be a, a, a hit. You know, it's. Like, you, you know, or tried and true, you think, let's open with that song, let's sort of grab people. That's um, that's what record companies want you to do, and that's what people tend to do. Yeah. You try, you know, when you're structured an album, you think, let's put two or, two or three songs that are maybe going to be fairly immediate and hopefully will grab people. Um, but they've not done that at all here. 
Uh, and like I say, it's stylistically, it's you know the next track Zoloft and it's a little drum machine. There's even a little skip on the drum machine at the start, as though it's like there's a, like a little mistake in the terms of the way it's been recorded or whatever. I'm not sure how they've done that, but it's <laughs> uh, um, but it's all part of the charm, really. And it kind of it keeps them. It's almost like kind of. You know, it's kind of the front door does not suggest what is behind the door. There's a way of kind of keeping people who aren't committed fans at arm's length. It's like kind of, as you say, you listen to those first two tracks. There's no sense at all of what's to come, of what kind of melodicism and kind of, you know, almost kind of that sort of a kind of drifting. There's also, you know, there's tracks that sound like Pink Floyd. There's tracks that sound like David Crosby, you know, kind of at their heart. They are great songwriters. And I, and I think kind of if you don't know about Ween, that wouldn't be the first thing that you would say about them. But I think kind of Quebec, you know, proves that in Spade that they Spades that when they were at their peak, which I think this album is this and White Pepper. I think are my my favourite period of Ween. I think just absolutely brilliant pair of songwriters. If you were going to play a track to somebody from Quebec, which track would you choose and why? I think I would pick I Don't Want It um, because, you know, it's it's just a great song. It's fairly basic in terms of uh, the structure. You know, there's a verse chorus, a nice little intro riff and a great big guitar solo, which is absolutely massive. Um, but it, but it's it really for, for its sort of musicality and its catchiness and its simplicity. It's just a great song, I think. Anybody who heard that song would like it. You know, be it's difficult not to like us. Uh, and you know, the the sort of lyrical content's it's great too. Just it's you know again quite basic. But that that opening line, did we miss the moon? And then that's quite an intriguing opening line. Um, so I, I think I would choose. I don't want it. Thanks so much, Norman. Really, really enjoyed it. No, at all. Thank you. Okay, this is I Don't Want It, written and arranged by Ween from the album Quebec, released on Sanctuary Records. Or did we miss the moon? I'd lie in your arms if I could now. It's such a common pain. Repeats itself again and again now. You're listening. <laughs> you're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Norman Blake. Norman Blake. Norman Blake. Norman Blake. Okay, now we get to the part of the show where we rave about some of the new records this week. John, what have you been listening to? I feel like we should have kept. Uh, we should have somehow persuaded Norman to stick around. Actually. Oh yes, uh, of course. Um, because like most weeks, I've been listening to Neil Young this week. <laughs> um, um, and like most weeks, there's a new Neil Young album out, um, or at least a new Neil Young archive album. It's, uh, this, one, this one is uh, quite a big deal, I guess, really, because it's one of his famous lost albums, Chrome Dreams from 1977. It dates from that time in Neil's career where... It certainly seems with hindsight, and perhaps at the time as well, that he was recording and shelving classic albums at the rate of a couple of year, um, like Homegrown and Odeon Budokan and uh, uh, Oceanside Countryside and a bunch more that we're waiting for on future editions of his archives box sets, I guess. Anyway, 
Chrome Dreams has been one of those biggies, I suppose. And one of the reasons why is that it's packed with some of his most famous songs, like uh, Like a Hurricane, Pocahontas, Powderfinger, Sedan Delivery. There's a bunch of other things on there. That All that said, it's a bit of a weird one, to be honest. On one level, you listen to it, and you listen to the 12 songs, and you think, this is, this is just straightforwardly a masterpiece. This is, you know, some of... The greatest song, one of the greatest songwriters of all times, greatest songs, all collected together rather than dispersed over a bunch of uh, other albums and diluted to a greater or lesser degree. But on another, and I have to admit, this is from the perspective of being a bit of a Neil Young nerd, it's, it's, it's weirdly a disappointment because so many of these songs and so many of the actual versions of these songs that have ended up on this formal Neil iteration of Chrome Dreams, as opposed to all the the bootleg versions that we've dealt with over the years, we kind of already know, either from records like American Stars and Bars or some of his recent archives box sets, we only actually get two unheard versions, a version of Sedan Delivery and a solo Hold Back the Tears. And we don't get it. It's kind of like when Homegrown came out, there were songs on Homegrown that we didn't even know existed. There were songs like Florida, a very weird song called Florida. Um, there's nothing like that here. There's no big surprises. It's just, it's kind of, it's as great as we thought it would be, but it's as exactly as we thought it would be. Okay, let's hear a little bit of that alternate rougher take of Sedan Delivery from the archive release Chrome Dreams, written by Neil Young and released on Reprise Records. Now, to a lesser Neil nerd like myself, I like this because it feels like, because I don't know the tracks, the kind of archive tracks as well as you. So to me, it's like tuning into a parallel universe Neil Young history. And I like kind of, you know, sort of suddenly hearing these songs, some of them in a more sort of delicate frail sort of form or some of them in a sort of an unformed demo form or without overdubs and so kind of not having kind of scoured the archives to hear them originally I kind of like this you're right it doesn't something seems to be missing it doesn't play like a classic and it might be because you know there's that sense of which kind of you know you are already familiar with these songs or because some of them aren't kind of like don't have that extra oomph behind them that you're used to hearing but it kind of which is you know going all the way back to hearing kind of you know those sort of like the the Beatles archive stuff back back in the 90s there's still that kind of thrill of the fact that you've tuned into another version of history you know you've kind of you've just kind of alighted on another version of 1977 that didn't exist and now does and I like that and I think with an artist of 
Neil Young's caliber and with that kind of that quality. I mean, it is an astonishing batting average on this album in terms of the quality of songs. All killer, it's no still, filler. Yeah, it is all Cortez the killer, <laughs> no filler. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so that's, I mean, that's a joy. So it is like kind of you're quite, but I understand that sense of confliction. You're thinking why, given this astonishing track listing, isn't it doing more for me? Isn't it lifting me up into the heavens, you know? Well, and so kind of there's there's a curious sense of sort of elation and deflation at the same time. I, th- I think it, I think part of it is from that specific point where his productivity had gone kind of haywire yeah. in a way. And so I think not a lot of Neil Young albums are very discreet projects mm. that you can you can see here's the band I'm going to work on, here's the sound I'm going to go for. Here's the bunch of songs I've written about an old car or about Monsanto or about my ex-girlfriend or whatever. Mm. That, that, like they're very, they're very, they exist in their own very short but very defined universe. Mm. But what he he was just becoming more diffuse at this time, I think. Yeah. And 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 I suppose when you listen to an album, there's there's a lack of satisfaction to some degree over an album like American Stars and Bars because Very it feels so, yeah. like it feels like he's drawn a bunch of these songs from different sessions and patched them together in a way that On the Beach or Zuma didn't feel like, mm. say, for instance. And and maybe one of the issues with Crime Dreams is that it it feels a little bit like that as well, that actually that it doesn't have this kind of wholeness to it. Yeah. It you, I suppose we always assume that American Stars and Bars and and hooks and doves and a few of these other records were drawn from a bunch of very cohesive abandoned records, but actually the abandoned records turn out to be not very cohesive at all. Yes, and that absolutely. might even be the way, reason why he abandoned them in the first place. I think but, you're right. So you kind of there's this this belief that you you know what you what you're getting is this kind of finished album record all recorded in one studio all recorded over a series of the same sessions and it isn't you know it's kind of it's just you know it's kind of uh, the the years it covers are what for like 73 to 77 or something yeah i'm not sure it just go about that far yeah yeah but one of the things i do like though is is kind of this his impressive dedication to terrible cover art so kind of you don't get the david briggs original but you get um, a Ronnie Wood um, artwork on this version, which that is, is amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't just want to as... diss Ronnie here, but oh, well, yeah, no, Ronnie has. I think I think Ronnie has many skills, but um, <laughs> I think some of them are are less um, worthy of comment than others. Um, might, maybe look, maybe we'll edit this bit out. But that well, album no, no. stinks, doesn't it? Well, it, I, I've, I've seen I've seen worse from Wood. <laughs> now we're just now we're just digging ourselves no, I, no I'll, t- I'll tell you what i think is interesting about it is that actually that in, in spite of all of what we've just said there is something happily and beautifully predictable about a lot of what neil does because yeah. you kind of you kind of know the people he's going to play with or has played with you know kind of what directions he's going to go in more or less you know, trans or whatever, notwithstanding, you can you can predict what's going to happen. I would never have predicted that there was going to be a Ron Wood cover Fair point. for this record. Fair point. Yeah, and I suppose on a on a on an album that 
is wonderful but perhaps lacks those curveballs for the mm. core fan, then maybe one surprise, <laughs> albeit a Ron Wood sleeve design, is maybe not a terrible thing. Fair point. I concede, I concede. Okay, my album this week is, and I hope I um, get this correct, is Fly or Die, Fly or Die, Fly or Die, double brackets, World War, the third LP by the New York and Chicago-based jazz trumpeter Jamie Branch, who sadly died in August of last year, aged just 39. It's, there's no other way of saying it, it's an incredible record. It was recorded just a month before her death um, with her Fly or Die ensemble, and it's kind of a vast eclectic, amorphous, angry, but utterly thrilling mix of free jazz, but also kind of deep grooves, chants, rap, cello drones, folk, even um, hardcore punk. I mean, here is the um, incendiary track, uh, Take Over the World, from Fly or Die, Fly or Die, Fly or Die, World War, composed by Jamie Branch and released on International Anthem Records. upsetting record in a way as well because yeah. because the life force which is so vivid and dramatic on that track and all the way through the album is is you know tragic obviously because of her passing it's um i think some of the things that you just referred to about free jazz and that kind of thing it it's not a forbidding record it's an incredibly accessible exciting record as well and it and it also it elides those borders in a way that you know, a lot of records do, I guess, at this point. But but it does so it does so in a different way. And in this kind of the the sort of hardcore punk thing or or you know, the, the, there's a cover of a meat meat puppet song on here which is just brilliant and just really captures that kind of um backwards punk spirit of the meat puppets while reframing it with a cello and a trumpet you know yeah. and things like this and it all it all makes such incredible sense when you listen through the record yeah i think it's um it's a very welcoming record i think that's the thing it's kind of like and that's not something that you tend to associate with free jazz which you kind of think of as kind of combative or forbidding or kind of very much kind of you know a, a, a full-on assault but because it's got that groove all the way through and because it's got those chants and because it's got those drones all the way through there's a real warmth there's something like a kind of embracing warmth about the record which is kind of really really hard to resist there's something kind of very warm and lyrical and kind of yeah embracing about the record whilst at the same time it doesn't in any way diminish its kind of force or attack. Definitely. It's um, it's on the Chicago label International Anthem, 
and I think in terms of strike rate over the past four or five years, yeah, it's probably my favourite contemporary label just because there's so much wonderful music has come out of it. And one of the it's 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 ostensibly a jazz label, although I think that's quite a limiting term for a lot of what they do and a lot of what the musicians focuses. But it's also I think so much of the music that they release has this spiritual but quite forceful sense of community to it. Mm. And and none more so than Jamie Branch's music. And th- there was um I went to International Anthem did a an amazing show, one of the best shows I saw last year at the Barbican in London, and um, it was um, Angel Batdaweed and Ben Lamar Gay, who was incredible, Jeff Parker, and uh, Britain's own Alabaster de Plume headlined. And one of the things that they did, there was um, for the encore, they all came on stage and they did a version of uh, a Jamie Branch song, Love Song for Assholes and Clowns. And and it had that what you were talking about about that chant and that emotional undertow, but also a real sense of consolation through unity in the face of grief, which I think yeah. um, it, it is 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 a consolation that we can take from listening to this record as well, yeah. because while it is a very angry and furious record, and it is you know fly or die world war and you know various pretty punchy sentiments it also it also it's also it's not a defeatist record and it's not a defeatist movement that jamie branch encapsulated it's it it's uh i i see it as a movement and, and an ideology which is that we fa- we face down problems with our positivity and our collectivism yeah, I think it's a it's a really inspiring record. It's curious, isn't it? Because there is consolation in the music, and yet in listening to it, part of the consolation it offers is over the sadness at her loss. It's like kind of yeah, what yeah. she's left behind is yeah. a music of consolation that works partly in mourning her own disappearance from the earth. You know, yeah, and just listening to the way, to her trumpet tone. Yeah, optimizes that as well because yeah. you know it's um, she's a very lyrical player. You know, it's like in terms of free jazz, we don't necessarily. We, you know, I think our our default expectations or stereotypes about what free jazz is is quite yeah. skunky. Yeah, she doesn't really. I think she had huge capacity to play that way. Yeah, but I think she she really favoured long held. Siren, siren call notes yeah. in the trumpet, and and just this amazing breath control, and it's just really, it's beautiful music. It's a, it's an incredible record. And I think kind of going back to what you were saying, you hear, you're right, you hear a philosophy in it. You hear a kind of in the same way that you do in a lot of the music on international anthem, even though it's not explicit, you feel that there is a kind of there's something kind of embracing and welcoming in the sound that you feel is kind of part of the whole sound of that label absolutely yeah excellent okay um you have been listening to norman blake john mulvey and myself andrew mail that was the mojo record club we hope to see you at the next one you can all join in and look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. Pope music.